Ale od nás. Now as we begin our two-week retreat, after our six weeks of preparation, we'll focus in the afternoon sessions, I imagine, uh, every time, we'll see. Sometimes unexpected things happen, but I think we'll focus for the afternoon sessions just on the real essence of the seven-point mind training in terms of the meditative essence, and that's the cultivation of ultimate and relative bodhicitta. And so... Atisha was a very multifaceted individual because he wrote, even though he never wrote this one down, this was an oral transmission that was later written down by a Geshe Chekala, Geshe Doji, as I recall. Um, but it's, it traces right back to him. It was his baby, but it was, it was not so much of a public dharma, the seven-point mind training. It was for those, it wasn't some, something especially secret like that. It was just that he, this was transmitted to people who were really dedicated, the people who were all in, so to speak. Uh, so that was, it was really for really hardcore practitioners, right? And the Lam Rim, that was for everybody. I mean, whether you're a householder and you only have to, maybe you don't meditate at all, but you kind of, you adopt the worldview of the, of the Lam Rim, the stages of the path, teachings on renunciation, bodhicitta, realization of emptiness. But he taught these two avenues, right? Um, and in the avenue of the Lam Rim, and this is true for all of them. Now, there are Lam Rims in all schools of Tibetan Buddhism, and in some of them there are many, many Lam Rims, but they all have some basically the same structure. In the classic Lam Rim, or its Tibetan word means stages of the path, it's a sequence primarily of discursive meditations, but they all culminate in Shamatimpapashana. So that was, I received a, a note from Randa about one wonderful Lama who was encouraging his students to spend, you know, more, devote more time to meditation, one year retreats even longer, to practice Lam Rim and, sh- and Shamatha. And I just have a, nomin- a nominal, what do you call it, something to pick? A bone to pick. A nominal bone to pick. It's a semantic bone to pick. And that is, I would never say, practice, you know, meditate on Lam Rim and Shamatha. Because Lam Rim isn't complete if Shamatha is left out. It culminates in Shamatha Vipassana. They all do. So I'm sure he had a special reason for emphasizing that, and, but that's it. That was my bone to pick. Big deal, you know. But there it is. They're all culminating. But, you, but you're cultivating your renunciation first, then your bodhicitta, you're, and then moving through the six perfections of generosity, ethics, patience, enthusiasm. And then finally, the grand finale, shamatha. And then, of course, the grand grand finale is vipassana and the union of the two. So that's a very, very, oh, I could say brilliant sequence, an integrated series of discursive meditations. And then moving into non-discursive, that is shamatha is a non-discursive, you, you know very well, uh, but then you emerge from that back into a mode of probing, back into a kind of a discursive meditation, elaborate or simple. But then what's the idea there? It was all discursive. But again, even when you're cultivating bodhicitta, you don't talk all the way through, right? When you're cultivating insight into impermanence and death, you don't talk all the way through. You maintain the discursive meditation until there's kind of an opening like an aha, like you're, re- oh, oh, like that. And then you linger. You let it seep in. You let it seep in. Like a person who's addicted to nicotine, let's say. And he's heard, yada, 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 yeah, okay, emphysema, lung cancer, yeah, I got it. And then he sees somebody, a dear friend who's dying of lung cancer because he was smoking just like he was and is. And then there's an aha. And he lingers there. My friend is now dying. And it sinks in. He doesn't have to think, my friend is dying, my friend is dying, and recite that 100,000 times. You don't necessarily have to do that. Once you get it, then you just let that sink in, non-discursively, and then it shifts your priorities. Maybe I'd rather go through the struggle of getting off my nicotine addiction and you know, live a longer and healthier life, most likely. So likewise, for all of these points, precious human rebirth, impermanence, the rally of suffering, and right on through, it's discursive, and then it goes non-discursive. It's discursive until the opening, something that your thoughts, your discursive thoughts are counteracting other attitudes that are contrary to them. Like, I'm going to live forever. You know. Or, so what, I'm human. Everybody's human. You know, just taking it for granted. Somebody made that comment to me today in one of our meetings. That wherever we are, whether we're rich or poor, handsome or ugly, fat or skinny, whatever we're accustomed to, we take for granted. You know, you're living, when I was living in L.A., uh, you know, as a teenager, we just took for granted. Of course, the air is foul. Doesn't everybody else breathe just right behind the automobile? You know, the the exhaust pipe from an from a car. 
You know, isn't that normal that you can't breathe deeply because you'll cough? You know, I mean, we had no choice. What are you going to do when you're 16? You know, clear out the fog, clear out the smog. And so I'm going on too much here. But this is a sequence. For those of you who have been meditating, it's sometimes missed. That it's just thinking, thinking, thinking. You know, it's not. It's thinking and getting insight and let it seep in. And likewise with the four immeasurables. You're doing the discursive practice until the heart opens. There's a warmth, there's a moisture, there's something really flowing. This is loving kindness. A mother who's gazing at her child sleeping in bed, sleeping peacefully in bed, and gazing at her child, she doesn't have to recite a mantra, may you be well and happy, may you be well and happy. It's already open. All she has to do is gaze, right? Just gaze. And the loving kindness is there, right? And so insofar as we have ways of thinking, attitudes, ideas, beliefs, and so forth that are blocking the flow, then discursive meditation is getting there like civil engineers to rip down the walls, the barriers we already have created and sustained by habituation. So discursive meditation is very important. You're not going to get everything just by watching your breath, right? Or resting your mind into natural state. So discursive meditations, we pick them up, and then after a while, when the dam of our delusional thinking, false assumptions, and so forth and so when that breaks, then you just rest in that, and you flow. And, you're, and it's kind of like just your whole worldview is shifting and shifting on its axis. So you're not seeing the world in the same way, right? Well, as this is true as you're developing renunciation, and to, yet to the point where you really don't have to develop renunciation anymore, you are renounced. You really are not drawn to, you're not attracted to some, the allures of samsara. Like, they say it's like offering grass to a tiger. Offer it to a deer and say, mm, yum, 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 give me more. Offer, offer grass to a tiger and see how much interest you get. You know? Well, that's it. You know, when you're really disillusioned, then like there you are. You don't have to work at it anymore. And so there's a point at which it becomes spontaneous. And likewise, there's a point at which bodhicitta becomes spontaneous. You cultivate it through the four immeasurables, for example, and through the four greats, Mahakaruna and so forth. You cultivate each of these discursively until it flows. And then you stop with the, discur- the, the discursiveness. You stop the, stop the talking. You've talked enough, you know. And then you flow in it. And likewise, right up to the actual bodhicitta itself, that aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the sake of all beings, you cultivate, 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 until at some point it's just, it's like having achieved shamatha and bodhicitta. That you just go into a slide. It's effortless. You remember bodhicitta. You remember ninth stage. You remember shamatha. It's Effortless in, it's effortless there, it's effortless out, right? Because the friction has worn away and it's smooth. The friction of I, me, mine, of my well-being being more important than anybody else, it's worn smooth. We just sand it smooth with discursive meditation, right? And then when it's smooth, then you don't need to keep on sanding. As Shantideva says, then it just... It sparks so easily. You can be, at the end of a long day, you've been working hard, watch a little bit of harmless television or some just nice, innocent entertainment television, and your bodhicitta is still flowing, flowing, flowing right through it. You're still accumulating merit. You're still moving towards enlightenment as you're watching some, you know, like a nature documentary, something wholesome, something fine, you know? You're, st- you're still moving towards enlightenment, but you're sliding like a puck on smooth ice. So, there's the Lama Remember. I'm going on much longer than what I'm, I was intended, but I so much enjoy listening to what I'm hearing. <laughs> it strikes me as being really good dharma, you know, and it, wow, okay, you can, you can continue, go ahead, okay. Um, now, to continue. <laughs> and then, but here's this great Atish, you would think that would be enough. I mean, to, because he was the one that systematized this. He put it all in sequence. This brilliant sequence that was just so powerful, so transformative, that all schools of Tibetan Buddhism says, yeah, count us in. We're, we're Nyingma, but yeah, we like that. We're Kagyu, we're Sakya, we're Gelupa, but we'll, we'll take that. And then you can find Lamrims in all the four schools. Right? And they, they follow the same por- format. But that wasn't enough for Atisha to just create one format that would work for Tibetans for, tw- you know, for a thousand years and now is working all over the world. But he had this other one, the other one for people who are all in, and that was the seven-point mind training that some, sometime after him, it was written down, formalized, and there it is. We have it in these verses, these aphorisms. But there we see he does something very different. He just gives a one-liner to the four thoughts that turn the mind. That's your renunciation. Doesn't mention bodhicitta, you know, enlightenment for the sake of all sentient beings. Doesn't even mention that. He goes directly from there 
and says, okay, now get, get real. Get your mind together. You've, you've, you're already all in. You're already absolutely dedicated. Good. Go into retreat and chief shamatha. That, that's one line. You know, it's one half of one line. Having achieved stability, okay, that was shamatha. <laughs> Somewhat then, now reveal the mystery, the mystery of the nature of your mind. Right? So with one half of one aphorism, he said, yeah, of course, chief shamatha, of course. And now slip right on in, the water is fine, and go right into ultimate bodhicitta. And then he lays that one out, formal meditative practice, and then what do you do in between session in your post-meditative practice? Act as an illusory being in between sessions, right? And that's it. That's all I have to say. It was like, what, four or five aphorisms? He's finished with ultimate bodhicitta. He goes to relative bodhicitta, focuses on that, and then the rest is all way of life. The rest of it all around that. He deals with the view, the meditation, and now, we've, now for, for at least a week, if not two, We've finished that formal presentation of relative, but relative and ultimate bodhicitta. Then the rest is way of life, and that whether it's that way of your li- your way of life, living as a yogi in solitude, meditating 16 hours a day, you still have eight left over. So there's something in between sessions, right? Or you're you're living with a with a, you know four children and a, and a spouse and a full-time job and so forth. Either way, here it is. Here's your way of life, and he's kind of this massive. He's like this Mount Everest of a spiritual alchemist, telling you. With these seven points, you should be able to alchemically transform everything that comes up, internally and externally, into the path. Whether you're a yogi living in a mountain cave at 5,000 meters, or whether you're a mother living in Los Angeles with four kids and a full-time job. Okay, yes, if you're really all in, because the only people who are all in are not just the yogis, it can be a mother with four kids. But she says, I'm all in. I'm not going to abandon my children. That would be all out. And so, no, this is my dharma. This is where my practice is but I'm going to transform all of it because life is short and I want to make sure this is the path, this is the life in which I enter the path with my four kids, right? So you're all in either way or you're not. There are yogis that goof off and there are people who go into retreat and they goof off. They're not all in. They're having a little, you know, vacation. There are monks who never meditate. There are monks who are living more like lay people than many lay people I know. So the mere fact that you're living in a certain place, don a certain garb, have a certain number of resets, no guarantee, no guarantee at all. So we all know now what, we mean, what I mean anyway by all in, and it's hardly a novel concept. It's what they called in the time of the Buddha becoming a homeless one. But back then it was easier. You just you have to become a homeless one. But then as, as, as history unfolded, just a footnote on that, as history unfolded and especially as, as, as the Mahayana emerged, there's a, brilliant, a, a marvelous sutra. This is now definitely a tangent, but it's a meaningful one. That Bob Thurman, one of my mentors, uh, taught me Sanskrit. Uh, it's the Vimalakirti. Vimalakirti Sutra. He translated it. Of course, it's a very good translation. But it's this layperson, a layman, who was never a monk, and he's living a householder's life. He's also a highly realized bodhisattva. I think he's an Arya bodhisattva. And then here you see, it's, it's a very powerful dialogue, where the monks are coming to him, you know, and they're, they're the ones who are, that are living the way of life you know, for their own liberation. And he's showing them Look, it's very good to be a monk. <laughs> One can almost paraphrase, it's very good to be a monk. It's even better to practice dharma. You know? Because there he is. He's a lay person, but he's a bodhisattva. And he's all in. There's no less dedication from his side as a lay person who intends to remain a lay person as there are for these wonderful monks who are coming to him. It's different strokes for different folks. So I'll give one more cliche. So here, coming back to the ultimate bodhicitta. <coughs> He's going there first with this very brief preamble, like one and a half lines, okay? First of all, train in the preliminaries. Okay, the four thoughts. Done that, good. Okay, then now carry on. Dampatopne, having achieved, having achieved stability. Okay, you achieved shamatha. Sangwaten, okay, now reveal the mystery of your mind. And then he goes, boom, right into ultimate bodhicitta. So, as I mentioned, without hopefully too much more, because I'm kind of getting tired of hearing this guy, um, when we think of ultimate bodhicitta, what I would strongly encourage you not to do is to think, oh, but that's really ultimate, that's really high. I probably can't do that. Don't do that. That's a mistake. Um, There are different understandings of what ultimate bodhicitta means in the Sutrayana context. It can, very frequently, ultimate bodhicitta refers to realization of emptiness. Ultimate bodhicitta. 
if we go into this adjacent tradition of Dzogchen, I think as you well know by now, ultimate bodhicitta is the realization of rikpa, which of course implies, of course you realize emptiness, because there's no way you're going to realize rikpa without having realized emptiness. Not possible. Any more than, I'm going to say it again, any more than you can be in a, in a very lucid dream and think, and think at the same time that the things appearing to you are really out there from their own side. Well, that's just, that's a logical impossibility. Because if you know you're dreaming, then you know those things are not from there. Like, it's a dream, you know, so it's pretty clear. And likewise, if you realize Rikpa, then you've realized emptiness. Right? You may realize emptiness first. That's a classic sequence. But there are those cases where people realize Rikpa, and by the power of that, they realize emptiness. The point I'm coming in on here is this, that in the, these classic mind treasures of Dujum Lingba, he lays out just the um, introduction. He does a very brief inter, in, uh, inquiry in these multiple mind treasures, a very brief inter, in, uh, inquiry into the question, among the body, speech, and mind, which one's primary? Which one's primary? Which one's primary? Which one's derivative? It starts there. If you don't get the, if you don't get the right answer, then it's kind of like applying to a university and not getting admitted. If you get the wrong answer, if you want to hold on to that, you're welcome to, but you, there's just no reason to go further because you're not admitted. If you think among body, speech, and mind that body is most important because the mind is a derivative of the brain, that's fine. You're welcome to think that. But to think that you can hold that view and you're also going to practice uh, Dzogchen, I'm sorry, but that's not likely. Not likely. Because you, you failed the kindergarten exam. Right? You need to investigate this, throw off all the shackles of dogma, and check it out and come to the conclusion that's pretty evident when you probe deeply enough. The mind is primary, the speech and the body are derivative. Okay, got that one straight? And can you find the mind that is derivative? Can you find the mind? Once you come to the conclusion, whoa, this is the big one. If I can only understand one thing, the body, my speech, or my mind, which one will I place the higher priority on? What will I really focus on? Well, a lot of people say, oh, the, the, the body's stupid, because after all, everything's the you know, material and derivative properties of material. They're fine to think that. I'm not going to refute it anymore. But for those who come to the conclusion, the mind is primary. Good. Now, does the mind exist? Can you find it? Can you find its origin? Where does it come from? Where is it located? Where does it go? So he's setting the state with kind of like a right hook and a left knockout. Come to the conclusion the mind is primary and then, and then just determine for yourself it cannot be found. That will rock you. That will rock your boat, okay? And then, in two out of three of, the, the, of these kind of core mind treasures, the Vajra essence, sharp Vajra, and intenta samadha Vajra, two out of three, as I recall, I haven't memorized them, but I'm pretty familiar with them, I don't think there's any reference to preliminary, preliminary practices at all. It's just boom, boom, and now you're into ultimate bodhicitta. And in the Vajra essence, there's one line. One line in, in a 400-page text. There's one line that says, do the seven, seven preliminaries, and he doesn't mention what they are. Okay? He's not marginalizing. It's simply that, let's get on with it. And when Gyatra Nabaji taught me the spacious path of freedom and then the sequel, Naked Awareness, he said, we'll skip the preliminaries. You know about that already. There's already the material's already there. Let's just get on with it. Goes right to stage, regen stage regeneration, the Avalokiteshvara practice. Boom, right into Shamatha Vipassana, and on the way, but again, what I'm, I'm going to let the shoe drop, finally get to the point here. And that is, when are you practicing techu? That's the breakthrough to pristine awareness, right? That's Dzogchen meditation. When does that start? How high do you need to be to begin that? And I can answer the question, because it's clear. It's in, in the text. I'm just telling you what's in the text. And that is, you're starting to practice techu when you start to practice settling the mind in its natural state. When you observe, when you, you've cracked the door open, when you can distinguish between stillness and motion, mazel tov, you've now begun. You're now practicing texture. Are you realizing rikpa? Probably not. But then you don't master, you don't master let's say, calculus the first time you sit down and, and try to do, you know, do a problem or do an equation. And so that's when it starts. So how does this relate here? And that is in this... In this sequence of the seven-point mind training, he's taking us very rapidly into ultimate bodhicitta. 
obviously, like the left hand supporting the right in the mudra of meditative equipoise, the wisdom supporting the compassion, the ultimate bodhicitta supporting the relative bodhicitta, right? But when you, can you begin? You've already begun. All of you have had some taste of mindfulness of breathing. That's a really good preamble to settling the mind. You've had some taste of settling the mind. You've had some taste of awareness of awareness. You've had some taste of merging mind with space. You're already in. You're already up to your ankles. You've already begun cultivating ultimate bodhicitta. You've already become textured. Okay, you can, you can call yourself a Dzogchen practitioner. I don't mind. You know? You're practicing texture. You're practicing the initial phases. This is how it starts. Not by having some bold, Eureka, my goodness, my whole mind is blown because I've realized Rikpa. That's very cool if it happens. That's what the, those people of medium and superior faculties get. Okay, good for them. Have a nice day. You don't need to listen to anything I'm saying. They're ignoring me, I'm sure. You know. But for you know, folks like us, who may be not quite there, medium and high, superior, you know, the, the, pro, the proletariat of the contemplative world. <laughs> so this is how we begin. So when you think of... In one of my books, in the, uh, the, you know, this, my, the book that I think is one of the best and the least re read by anybody, Meditations of a Buddhist Skeptic, it begins by contemplatives of the world unite. You have only what, something like the chains of delusion to lose. I don't think anybody really got on. I kind of liked it myself, but I've enjoyed the book. At least, you know, I would give it a five-star rating. <laughs> Very good book. Well done, chap. What did you say your name was? So, so when you think of ultimate bodhicitta, think the whole, ba the whole bandwidth. Mindfulness of breathing is there, too. It comes up in the sharp Vajra Tantra. It's there. If he says you're getting a little bumpy road, having some problems, working it out, into settling the mind, come back to mindfulness of breathing. It's there. A little bit of remedial work. Or it can take you all the way to shamatha, as you like. Settling the mind, awareness of awareness, threefold space. All of those are right in the continuum. Enter any of those, you've entered the stream. Okay? You've entered the stream of the cultivation of ultimate bodhicitta. And then when you think of relative bodhicitta, you may think, oh, but that's so high. I mean, it's so abstract, it's so esoteric, it's so advanced. I mean, really, I, can even, I don't even know really what full enlightenment means. I'm not quite sure I can do that. Yes, you can. If you can practice loving kindness practice with the motivation, may this lead to the realization of bodhicitta may and that lead to perfect awakening. Whatever that is, it's got to be good because the, the, the ground, the path, the fruition is all good, so it cannot be anything other than good. Then if you can practice a bit of loving kindness for your own child or for yourself, then you're, you enter the stream of cultivating relative bodhicitta, the four immeasurables, the four greats, the extraordinary resolve, and bodhicitta. And so... This is the essence of the whole seven-point mind training. In Lamrim, it's the relative comes first, the ultimate out of that. In the seven-point mind training, the, the ultimate first, and the relative, as Jujum Lingba says in Dzogchen, the relative bodhicitta flows spontaneously out of the ultimate bodhicitta. But we can help it along a little bit with practices like Dong, uh, Donglen. And of course, that's utterly accepted within the Dzogchen tradition. Dingo Kinzirinbuch himself, consummate Dzogchen master, and his last and a will and testament to his disciples, and I think especially his Western disciples, after having taught for some decades, you know, lots, and of course, he's teaching Dzogchen when the time is ripe, but his last testament is, is this marvelous little commentary to the seven-point mind training called Enlightened Courage. And he tells his students, you know, there are many, many esoteric, many profound teachings, but my last testament to you is the seven-point mind training. This will help you where you are. And if you can, if that can be if Dzogchen can come out of that, I'm now adding, of course, if this segues right into Dzogchen practice, very good. But the seven points, that's right where you live. This will help you. This will transform your life and lead you on the path to liberation. So that's it. So as we go into meditation now, much longer than I anticipated, but okay, I think it's meaningful. Then here's, I've, I'm kind of like a music teacher and I've taught you a lot of music for the last six weeks. So you have these four modes, and, and let alone the subtle variations among them, for the four modes of shamatha, and then on top of that, the threefold space meditation. All of that is in the flow of ultimate bodhicitta, right? And then many of you have, have, at least by podcasts or whatever you've heard teachings, you've engaged in the practice of the four immeasurables. And last year in the fall, I think it was, we did the four greats as well, Mahakaruna and so forth. And so that whole flow, and then the Donglen practice, of course. And then, as if you didn't have enough, then on Saturday we did the Avalokiteshvara practice, where there's no taking in of darkness, there's taking in the blessings of all the Buddhas. 
and then sending out a light of loving kindness. So is that, is that part and parcel of bodhicitta? Well, I think we don't have any qualms about that, right? Going to the very embodiment of compassion, of great compassion, Mahakuruna, ocean of compassion. So if you're more drawn to that on occasion, but like again, now you have a lot of music. So you don't have to play the same piece of music every day, you know, from day to day. And I think, I'm kind of expecting, I'm probably going to have the afternoon session, meditation session silent, to allow you to play your own music. And there's such a variety here. Keep it lively, keep it fresh, you know, as you're thinking beyond the next two weeks. Keep it lively, keep it fresh. You know? So sometimes you might start with the ultimate and then go to the relative. Sometimes something's happened in the day and you feel you really like to start with a relative and then go to the ultimate. And then we have all these variations on both sides. But they're all flowing. They're all flowing. This, this whole side here flowing into relative bodhicitta, all side here flowing into ultimate bodhicitta. And of course, where's that going? These two great rivers, these two great rivers, are, they're, they're just, they, they can't help it. They're going to flow together until they're one river. And when you are a vidyadhara, when you've gained the direct realization of rikpa, then it's one river. It's one river. And then you just remain in that river. You're a Dzogchen stream enterer. You've entered the stream to the great perfection. So choose your sequence from day to day. Choose your sequence. This be a, I guess I'm front-loading front the meditation for the next two weeks. Choose your sequence. Sometimes ultimate first, relative second. Sometimes vice versa. You have an array, five actually, with the threefold space for the ultimate bodhicitta. You have an array, quite an array, of these variations and culminating with Avalokiteshvara practice, an array for the relative bodhicitta. And then whether you spend four minutes in one and 20 minutes in another, 12 and 12, 8 and 16, that's just part of your creativity, right? So a little bit, again, I like this, I, I often come to this analogy, and, I, and it's something I almost know nothing about except for what I'm telling you. So what I've told you, now don't ask me any questions, I know nothing more. But the haiku, the Japanese, Japanese genre of poetry, what I understand of it, I think my understanding, as simple as it is, is true, and that is if you're composing your own haiku poetry, there's a very strict format, and if you don't stick to that, it's not haiku. So it's very strict, and I don't know exactly what those laws are, but I think they're simple, they're few, but if you don't follow that, it's just not haiku. It's something else, right? But within that, there's enormous, of course, just one could say almost infinite degree of flexibility, of possibilities of the haiku you will compose. Right? And it will be a haiku because you follow the format. But the content is going to be your art form. Right? So likewise, this is kind of a dual haiku. A dual haiku. There are so many ways. There's, that is, it's not just any old thing. If you're practicing shamatha, this current of ultimate bodhicitta, it's not anything that comes to mind. It's not that loose. But you know. And then likewise, for the relative bodhicitta, it's not just anything. It's not attachment. It's not romantic love. Not, and not a lot of things, but within what it is, tremendous potential for creativity. So that, like an artist, every time you sit down and engage in these practices, you may come up with a fresh creation. Okay. Oh, that's Are you finished? Yeah, boss. <laughs> Let's have 24 minutes silence. Today we'll move on to a new aphorism, but it's um, really the opposite side of the coin of the aphorism we just dealt with. And you recall from Saturday I added the, rather uh, elaborately, added the addendum of these different reliances, relying not on the person, on the Dharma, and then culminating in relying not upon your ordinary conditioned mind, your psyche, but rely upon primordial consciousness. Of course, in all of those uh, sequence, He's not saying don't rely at all, like don't rely on any teacher, they're all screwed up, just rely upon dharma. No, it's just in terms of prioritization. I think that was clear. And likewise for the fourth one, I think it was fourth, the rely not on your psyche, on your ordinary mind, your dualistic consciousness, but on primordial consciousness. It's a perfect segue to my introductory comments this afternoon. And that is when you're engaging in discursive meditation, whether you're reflecting on death and impermanence, you're cultivating loving kindness, or any of the discursive meditations, such as those laid out in sequence in the Lamrim literature, when you're doing that, you're activating your coarse mind. 
And you're thinking of this and that. I'm over here, you're over there, I'm thinking about that. It doesn't have to be delusional, it doesn't have to be saturated by reification, but it may very well be if you've not realized emptiness. And so, but coming to the culmination of that sequence, uh, as I was saying before, up to the shamatha, it's really discursive meditations and then slipping into the stream when you really kind of get it and then lingering there and letting that insight go deeper and deeper, right? And saturate, transform. And, but when it comes to shamatha, it's just non-discursive all the way through. I mean, you, it's not really a discursive meditation. It is simply one of letting your mind dissolve into the substrate consciousness. Then you move right into vipassana. Now, in any classic vipassana practice, and I would just say any authentic vipassana practice, whether Theravada, Mahayana, Vajrayana, and so forth, it always entails some mode of inquiry, which means there's going to be some degree of questioning, which is going to be some degree of conceptual activation, discursive meditation. But it's the same theme. And that is whether you're probing the origins, location, and destination of your thoughts, of your mind, of consciousness, and so forth. There's a classic of Vipassana on the nature of the mind. You probe and probe until there's some insight, and then you stop probing. And then you, then you slide. Sustaining. Is this familiar at all? Sustaining that insight. It's not just cognizance, but you've understood, you've ascertained something. And now, continue it. Continue knowing that. Continue knowing that, right? The sheer absence of any place your thoughts really emerge from as inherently existent things, any place they're really located, any place they really go when they vanish off the screen. And when there's insight there, which you may, you may arouse, you may cultivate, you may catalyze by your discursive meditation, but when that insight rises, that's a time, okay, now button up and go non-discursive and sustain with the power of your shamatha sustain your Vipassana. And so all of these are starting in discursive, with the exception of the shamatha. They start with the discursive, and then they culminate by going non-discursive. They start with your psyche. They culminate, culminate finally in primordial consciousness. So there's a segue there, right? Between the two, your ordinary mind, discursive, your intelligence, your analytic abilities, and all of that, right? All good, all to be used but get over it. Use it for what it's good for, which is a lot. But then when you can slip into a non-discursive, non-conceptual realization, that's where the deep transformation takes place. And there is no path. There is no path without slipping into that with knowing. Right? If, you're still, if you're still thinking, oh, I'm practicing Lamrim, I'm doing discursive meditation. Lamrim is discursive meditation. That's very good, but you'll never achieve the path. You can do that for a thousand years. A thousand years of discursive, yada, 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 for a thousand years. You know, 16 hours a day. Very transformative, very good, but you'll not reach the path. Because the path needs a mind that is truly supple, malleable, free of dysfunction. And only shamatha does that, right? So, that would be the segue. Now we move. We had those, those five powers, those five powers to rely upon throughout the course of your life. Power of positive seeds, power of prayer, power of revulsion, resolve, familiarization. So those five. Ah. And oh, I just lost it. Coming back. Oh, yeah, they're all there. Just a tiny different sequence, but they're all there. So we're now going to draw on those five, which were kind of a format for your Dharma practice for the, oh, the whole course of your life. They're pretty, they're pretty encompassing. But now the next aphorism. And time's time's moving, so I'm gonna, and we we will finish this text one way or another in the next two weeks. Um, the next aphorism is the Mahayana teaching on transferring consciousness is precisely these five powers. So your conduct is crucial. You have view, meditation, and conduct. Okay, that's the mighty triad. And I could really go off on a tangent there, and not going to. But as I mentioned, we finished the formal meditation, ultimate and relative bodhicitta. Now this is all about way of life, conduct. But now, we've covered that for life, but then oh, what about, wait a minute, transference of consciousness, that's, that's referring to the dying process. That's referring to the dying process, right? So we're going to take those same five, and when the day of your death comes, how can you apply it? Now, if you die very suddenly, utter unexpectedly, then, okay, then you just have the momentum of your life, but you really can't transform it, right? But many people don't die that way. They're in, they're in hospital, they're ailing, they see, okay, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm shutting down here. That, I mean, the optimal way to die physiologically from a Buddhist perspective is slow and easy with a clear mind and not too much pain. 
That's, there are preferred diseases in the Buddhist tradition. Uh, if you, we're all going to die, of course. But if you can die with a clear mind, that's a big advantage. Die gradually so you can really transmute it and not have it suddenly, you know, like a guillotine coming down. Uh, unless you know you're going to be a guillotine at Tuesday, then good, you prepare on Monday. Um, but also not too much pain. A friend of mine died of bone cancer. That's a very, very rough way to go out. Happily, thanks to modern medicine and the power of, um, you know, drugs, um, then he was, a, he was on a drip, you know, for the, for the drug to, to ease the pain. So he had actually a good death. It went well. But not, not, a, not a type of disease that I would choose if I had any choice over the matter. Um, so, but there it is. We can't choose, but if there's any possibility, that would be, you know, that would be the, the nice way to go. Clear mind, not too much pain. And so, and long, that it goes long enough that you can really transform it. But as I was meditating on this and kind of thinking a little bit, okay, what shall I share about this? Um, I actually started just laughing out loud repeatedly. Um, because I'm going to tell you something enormously familiar and then go a little bit non-familiar. And that is, we've all had friends who've had children. A friend of mine just wrote and he said, he's, he's about my age, and a new, a gr new grandchild, one of, his, one of his three sons, just had a baby. And of course, I, of course I, and genuinely, I write to him, as all of us would. Congratulations, I'm so happy for you. Being a grandparent is a ball. It's great. I'm so happy for your son, and it's a healthy baby. I'm happy for all of you. And I'm sure they, you know, they popped open the champagne or however they celebrated, but I'm sure he got lots of letters. And of course, the father and the mother. This is just normal, right? We, everybody, everybody knows that. Oh, a new baby is born. Everybody, big smile, big smile. And then 80, later, 80 years later, when that same person dies, oh, the smiles turn upside down. Oh, so, so. yeah, he died at the age of 80, but oh, oh, he's gone. And so we all wear black, and nobody smiles. And then we, we're all sad. Like we never saw that coming. It's kind of like somebody falling out of a hot air balloon, you know, at very high up in the sky, and everybody celebrating. He can fly. He can fly. Look, look at me going. He's, he's going. He's, wow. Everybody celebrate. Everybody popping the champagne when he falls out of the hot air balloon. Wow, he flies. And then everybody on the ground said, oh, he hit. Like, never saw that coming. You know. We're celebrating the beginning, but we find the end of tragedy. But the tragedy is built into the beginning because there's no birth without death. We might want to smooth that out a little bit. Because it, it, it struck me as, frankly, hilarious. The asymmetry of it. It's like seeing a train coming and delighting when you see the front of the train, but then bursting into tears when you see the end of the train. But wait a minute, if there's a front of the train, it's got to be an end of the train. There's no train that's two-dimensional, you know, that has no back. It's, it's got to be back, right? And so why don't we smooth this out? Why don't we just see it coming? Somebody's just born who's going to die. So why don't we just kind of take that in? Wouldn't that be more realistic than acting as if it always catches us unawares? Uh, we're surprised. Oh, he died at the age of 40. Oh, he died at the age of 20. Oh, he died at the age of 96. Like, we're always surprised. Not always surprised. 96 is kind of, okay, we th saw that one coming. <laughs> so Dharma is all about making it a meaningful journey. And that's what the first five powers were about. A meaningful journey, right? But the journey is going to come to an end. Right? And so how can you have a happy ending? And it's still death. That's what we're doing with the, the, applying the five powers. Okay? Now, as it turned out, as I was really reflecting on this and thinking of people falling out of an airplane, happy when they, they fall out, thinking they're flying. Granted, they're flying down, but they're certainly doing a good job. Ooh, I'm Superman, flying down. Ooh, this is fun. Ooh, not fun. You know, it was good until the end. You know? Like the person falls out of a building and says, what? it wasn't the dropping that fell. It wasn't the, the dropping that was the problem. It was the end. That was the problem. The dropping was okay. So I was reflecting, I got kind of reflecting a little bit further about that. And, further, and, then it, and then I thought about something I'd read about last year. And this is why I'm going to elaborate just a couple of minutes, but it's kind of cool. Because it turned out to be today. It was one year today that there was this fellow, Felix Baumgartner, who was an Austrian. And he got into a hot air balloon one year ago today, and he went up 128,000 feet. 120, highest anybody had been solo in a hot air, 128,000, into the stratosphere, way into the stratosphere. And then the strangest thing happened when he was way up there. Um, I'm going I'm to say this twice. He's, I mean, you can see big time the curvature of the Earth. I mean, he's way above the air, right? And can you imagine? You're ready for some really bad news? He's at 128,000 feet, and he fell out of the balloon. 
That's one way of saying it. The other way of saying it is this was all designed. He jumped out of the hot air balloon, right? But those are two very different statements, aren't there? He jumped out of it. And he went into four minutes and 20 seconds of free fall. He went faster than the speed of sound, 1.25 Mach. He went 143 miles per hour until he hit the Earth's atmosphere, and then he slowed down. He spent four minutes and 20 seconds in free fall. Then he pulled the chute, and then he spent four minutes and 50, se four minutes and 50 seconds with his parachute, having a gentle landing. And of course, he's very experienced. This was all planned you know, with a lot of preparation. And then, of course, these modern parachutes, they land like they've stepped down from one step to the next step. I mean, it's just tinkle, 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 you know? There's no, it's not like in World War II, crash, how many legs did you break? You know, it's tinkle, tinkle, tinkle. And so then he did it. He broke all kinds of records. Nine minutes and 10 seconds um, from jumping out, stepping out of the hot air balloon until he touched down. Well, the whole difference between that being a happy story and not a happy story is, did he touch down or was he roadkill? Really, everything hinges on that. There was a point, I'm elaborating a bit, but let's celebrate his day. This was a big day. Uh, there was a point after he'd been free-falling for quite a long time. One can imagine, time, imagine stretching that out, nine minutes and 10 seconds. Imagine that being 90 years, 91 years, you know, like that's a lifetime. He was born when he stepped out of the hot air balloon, and then he died when he touched down, right? So imagine that really slow. There was a phase of his life, of his 91-year-old, 91-year life, in which things got really bad. I'm, I'm, I'm serious. Uh, bad, because you know, you know what the, the skydivers do. They, they go like this, right? Well, there was one point he lost control, and he was tumbling out of control, like, water, like, like clothes in a, in a clothes dryer. And that's bad. If you can't come out of that, then pulling your pulling parachute could be really, really dicey. It may open beneath you, who knows what. It could be very bad. And so he found that quite, um, that woke him up. One thing is, I, I doubt that he had any moments of boredom. You know. <laughs> Take a nap, you know, wake me up in three minutes. You know. I checked, by the way, you have to pull it 2,000 feet or above if you'd like to really land softly, 2,000 feet. And he was 128,000. Okay? That's a lot of time to cruise. But when, in his 92-year span, he had some really good times. I've heard this before. He had some ups and downs, but overall it was downs. <laughs> that is, ups and downs. Times it was really smooth, but times it was really scary, like he could die now. If he doesn't re re regain his balance, then it could really be bad. He'll have a, you know, a, hard, a hard ending. I think I probably squeeze that one as much as I want. But it's interesting. But let's, now let's push it to, okay, let's imagine that's your lifespan. And so we just have a great big hot air balloon and people are being pushed out one after another. There's just not enough room. People just keep on pushing other people out or whatever. Just, they're, getting, they're, they're all on pogo sticks and they just get popped out of the hot air balloon. And people are watching the trajectory. And some of the, you've, we've all seen sky drivers. They'll, they'll form these wonderful designs if they're multiple ones at the same time. Designs, they'll do somersaults. They'll do this, they'll do all kinds of things, you know? And some are just tumbling and being kind of screwed up and so forth. But, so they'll have good times and bad times. But basically, there are two types of people who fall out of the hot air balloon. Really, fundamentally, two types. Those with parachutes and those not. And among the group who have no parachutes, within the trajectory, you can say, oh, look, they've gone into a snowflake formation. Oh, good, look at that, cool, he just did a triple somersault. And... But if you're kind of getting excited about that, but they don't have a parachute, and he's really enjoying it, look what I did. I just did a back salt. And look what I did. I did a star formation. And look at me. I'm smiling into the camera. Look at me. I'm pretend. Look at me. And aren't I wonderful? I've just earned $1 million. Look at me. I've got a gorgeous wife. Look at me. Look at my house. You know? It kind of doesn't matter. You know? And all is said and done, however good the trip was in terms of your hedonic pleasures, if you've not preparing, been preparing for the landing, then after, you know, nobody's going to be, you know, anybody who knows what's going on, you're all excited and running to your friends, sending email text messages to the other people falling through the air. I just won the lottery. Oh boy, I just lost my job. Oh, I'm so sad. But you know, I'll you know, splat. And so they're all excited. Think you won the lottery. Great. Oh, you lost your job. I'm so sorry. I'll pray for you. I'll get your job. Oh, I got my job back. Oh, I'm so glad. And, but the end of the game is if they're not wearing parachutes, they're all just hitting. It's the same. 
Whether you had a really nice fall or a really bad fall, it's kind of the same. It's splat, right? You hit the wall. So I, to my mind, the only thing that's really important is, you know, get a parachute. And if you, didn't, if you jumped out of the, this happens sometimes, if you fell out of the airplane and you didn't have a parachute, then call for somebody to jump out of the airplane after you with two parachutes. It does work. You go like this, they go like this, they can give you a parachute before you fall. The, the guy with the second parachute, that's called a llama. So recognizing that anybody who falls out of the hot air balloon is going to hit, and it's all very nice whatever story you have in trajectory, and you may feel very high, and you may be, but not for long, but sooner or later it's going to hit and be prepared, and that's what these five powers are about. It's all about that. To live well and die well. I like the image a lot, I have to say. So, but this is simple. Now we have just 40, 20 minutes. This will be enough. Because I think you've got, but the gist of it, the mood of it. In classic Buddhist terminology, there are different types of karma, and they do different things. But there's one particular kind of type of karma. It's called penchekile. It's propulsive karma. Those of you who studied Lamrin, you've been certainly encountered this term. It's a nice direct translation. Propulsive karma. There are certain types of actions that we'll engage in in a certain lifetime that they're so charged, they're so, so full, they're so complete that there's an act that will then propel you. That is, when you're in the bardo, it will propel you into your next life. It will be a human life. It will be a life in a very affluent, very benevolent family, very dharma family. It will be in abject poverty. It will be, be born with AIDS and so forth and so on. But there's going to be something in its human realm or whatever. But there's propulsive karma that shoots you, propels you, propels us into where we got here. So that's how most sentient beings wind up in one rebirth after another. God didn't do it to them. It's not fate or destiny. It's certain germination, a catalyzation of a certain karma that that's one, that, one's being, that one's winds up being the coiled spring that when you're in a bardo and you're wandering around looking for something, then you'll catalyze that with your desires in the bardo. Be careful what you wish for in the bardo. It's a really good time to be careful what you wish for. Because your desires in the bardo, that's going to be the one that loosed the springs. And then the propulsive karma that ejects you out of the bardo. You die from the bardo. And then, hey, it's a boy. You know, or it's a girl. Or it's a frog. Whatever it is, you know, there it is. <laughs> All the frogs are popping, popping champagne and going, uh, <laughs> we have another one. <laughs> you know? And all the snakes are going, good. Mm, yum. So propulsive karma. That's one way to come into a life. Very much like being propelled into a non-lucid dream. Right, I mean, extremely similar. You just wind up there. You don't know how you got there. And there you are. And you don't really know what's going on. And then the other way, of course, and at least one of you has had this experience, and that's of people who have very deep realization. And they pass through the whole dying process lucidly, into the substrate lucidly, into the clear light of death lucidly, into the bardo lucidly. They recognize the bardo as the bardo, which is basically exactly like being lucid in a dream. Knowing it's the bardo, they know now's the time to really get real and practice dharma and direct your aspirations, your prayers. And so you're not thrown. You're lucid. So you're not thrown. You direct your attention and you transfer your consciousness. So which would you rather be, thrown or choose? That's your choice. You can slack off and say, oh, dharma's too hard. I'm no good at dharma. I'm a loser. And then you can be propelled. That's the, that's the default mode. Don't do anything, then you get propelled. If you've lived a virtuous life, you'll be propelled well. Not so virtuous, not so well. Mixed, it's a crapshoot, no telling, because we have all kinds of mixed karma. So overall, to take full advantage of this lifetime so that we can be as sane as lucid as possible, and remain lucid through the dying process in the bardo, um, enormous benefits in that. Okay? But come what may, power of positive seeds, as time is running out quickly. Okay, now how do we apply that power of positive seeds? That means engaging in virtue, right? But how do you apply that when you're on your deathbed or you're mortally injured? You think the doctor tells you, I'm sorry, but I can't help you, so please say your goodbyes now. Hopefully you have that opportunity. Either old age, injury, illness, or whatever. But if you have some preparation in your end days, and even end hours. Well, now's the time to remember the five powers.
or transferring, that is directing your consciousness and not just being thrown all like, like in the great roulette, roulette wheel of your karma and hoping that it comes up a, good, a lucky number and you get propelled someplace good. So the power of positive seeds here is give up all your material goods to your objects of refuge with a sense of fearlessness regarding the hereafter. So this is, I mean, this is classic Buddhist practice. <coughs> when you're about to die, then it just behooves you to give up all attachment to everything you own, and that includes your body, your psyche, your loved ones, your homeland, your planet, your galaxy, give up all attachment altogether. Now, this is not saying, okay, give nothing for your children, but, you know, so we're all, all going to be sensible there. But he's also saying that this will serve you very well if whatever your objects of refuge are, maybe it's the Roman Catholic Church, maybe it's your synagogue, but your objects of refuge, what do you believe in most deeply? What's your ultimate reliance? Well, offer there, that's going in the right direction. Um, so, so give it all up, but it really it is, will not serve you well to be dying with attachment to that which you absolutely have to leave behind. Because that's going to create a tension, a conflict, that will not serve you well at all. That's going to give rise to anxiety and fear. Okay? So, there's, so there it is. Uh, and with a sense of fearlessness regarding the hereafter. If you practice dharma and you can't die fearlessly, or at least without regret, then I can't kind of think, all right, how authentic was your dharma? Because dharma is about living well, but it's equally about dying well and making a smooth and meaningful transmission, a transition. So learning enough about death that it doesn't surprise you when it happens, and when it does happen, that you maintain lucidity, a good heart, really continue practicing, is crucially important. So this is rather heavy stuff. I have to tell a joke. It's one of my favorite ones. It's, and it's very short. And I think, I think his name is, he's a Jewish comedian living in San Francisco, and I think his name is Swami Beyondananda. Ring a bell? Pretty sure. Uh, but I read this and I just cracked up. I thought it was so good. So there's some guru, some guru, and he's got an elderly woman who's very, very wealthy. And he's got her to be his disciple. He's a lucky guy. And so she, um, she, phone, she, phone, she phones him up and she says, Guruji, I felt this, um, this great sense of renunciation. I just, I just want to give everything away. I mean, I'm feeling just total dedication to, to liberation. But I want to give away all my possessions. What shall I do? And he says, don't do anything until I get there. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Find another guru. So there's the power of positive seeds. It's certainly well-being, but if you think this is for the benefit of the guru, or if the guru thinks it's a benefit for him or for him himself, then you might want to find another guru. It's for the benefit of the person who's offering. So power of prayer. So as you're checking out, out of your checking out, as you're checking out of the hotel human existence, disclose all your misdeeds. Don't keep on trying to suppress anything. Disclose, purify. Now's the time. Take refuge. Really good idea. Make offerings. Very good. Whoever, whoever stirs your heart, I mean, it's, it's, this is not an institutional thing, you know, enrich our church. Whoever has inspired you, maybe there's a spiritual friend, maybe a loved one, maybe a, it could be anybody. Maybe it's a guru, maybe it's anything. Maybe it's his holiness. Maybe it's some project in India that you really believe in. But give it away, happily, because it's going to be taken away anyway. So make offerings and ask for blessings to sustain the two bodhicittas during the bardo. So then is the time to pray to your guru, to your yidam, to the Buddha, to Tada, Manjushri, Apadmasambhava, aspiration. Now's the time for prospective memory. I'm about to leave human existence. I'm about to sleep, slip into a dreamlike phase. It's very transitory. May I sustain my two bodhicittas during that time. Bless me, that may be the case. Pray for blessing to sustain the two bodhicittas during the bardo and future lives. So now's the time you're really looking for continuity. Pray to sustain your two bodhicittas in the bardo of future lives. Pray to meet with spiritual mentors, ones that you consider authentic in the path that you've chosen, and to be led by them on the path of joy, the path of dharma. Okay? Now's the time for prayer, big time. And hopefully those prayers will carry right through the bardo into the next life, and you're in good shape. That's the power of prayer. Power of revulsion. Okay, you remember this. Power of revulsion, okay, considering self-grasping is the source of all misery. So determine not to latch onto a body, a, body, a body in the bardo, but let your mind dissolve into space. So he raised the bar rather high here. This is one of the... And Plato mentioned this. It's very interesting. I think it was in... What was it? No, I'm not going to... I've quoted it in at least one of my books. Plato commented 
something very similar to the Bardo, and he said people who are not philosophers, and philosophers were real sages back then, and not just people who got tenure. Um, <laughs> they were sages, which means that in, in Socrates, Plato, in that, in that current, a philosopher is a person who is not fixated on the bounties of the desire realm. That's exactly what it is. Not fixated on sex or your body or your wealth and so forth. Not the, none of the eight mundane concerns. That's a philosopher, right? And so, namo to the philosophers. And, it's, but, and he said, when, when you die, there are two types of people. The philosophers entering, having enter, entered into the phase after death, they, because they have habituated themselves not to identifying with and clinging onto their bodies, then they don't feel this, this how do we say it? This, in, this inevitable urge, get another one. I've lost my body, got to get a new one. And he said, non-philosophers will. They're going to start freaking out. They'll be in this phase for a while, and after a while, they just fill up this, they, they feel this enormous urge, got to have a body, got to have a body, and they start looking around for a woman, if there's going to be a human rebirth, to, okay, that's the one, and they come in. But this, this is what is said by, by, by Plato, Socrates, and then in the whole Buddhist tradition. If you've not trained well, you're going to be really wanting to get back into samsara get back into, you know, a body. Uh, so Plato says, you know, if you're a philosopher, you won't need that, and you don't need to be embodied. Um, and in here in Buddhism, well, now we'll see in Buddhism, uh, have this resolve, this power revul revulsion of having been thrown into a body once again, recognizing this self-grasping to the body, your other skandhas, seeing that determine power of very strong resolve uh, or revulsion to, I don't want to do that all over again, been there and done that, not in the bardo, to then start feeling this craving and follow it, to be re-embodied. You may see the, the desire arise, but if you practice settling the mind in a, for extensively, when you see this urge, oh, to be embodied again, you say, maybe not. Between the spark and the flame, you'll see there's an urge, but I think I'd rather have to do something else. Thank you. And then what he's suggesting here, let your mind dissolve into space. Gosh, how would we do that? Anybody have an idea? How would you dissolve your mind into space? Gosh, I wish we had some training on that. That would be good. You're supposed to, at least a little chuckle would be helpful at that point. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I was looking for. Okay. So there it is, the power of revulsion, power of resolve, the power of resolve to recall the two bodhicittas in the bardo and to train in them. You're just about to slip into an unknown, but we're trying to prepare you as well as possible so you won't be shocked. If you take it in stride, just like if, you're in a, if you become lucid in a dream, that you don't start, you know, flip out and immediately wake up. You know, say, oh, yeah, a lucid dream. And, and then you can carry on and play with it, right? Use it, transform it, learn from it. And likewise, when you slip into the bardo, that you say, oh, okay, well, I saw this coming. I, I remember. So if you have any lucidity at all, I remember what I heard about the bardo, that it's not going to be the guillotine coming down on existence altogether, just that one, that little short story I used to call my life which is now over. And you will have, for some time in the bardo, recollection of being who you were. And for a little while, the early part of the bardo, you'll take a form very, very similar to your form in your previous life. And in fact, as in the movie The Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis and that amazing boy actor, uh, you may not know you're dead because you have a form. And you might get, start getting really annoyed that as you're dropping in on people, they're ignoring you completely. That's what it said, just like in The Sixth Sense. It took him for a while to notice. I'm, I'm, this is a spoiler entirely for the movie. Um, but it's good to know you're dead as quickly as possible. And then deal with it. And don't be surprised. And then transform it. Use it. It's a great opportunity. That's the power of resolve. And so what to recall when you're in the bardo, in anticipation of being in the bardo, is how about the two bodhicittas in the bardo and continue cultivating them. Right? And the power of familiarization the power of familiarization as you are dying is the conscious practice of the two bodhicittas. So, I mentioned in my long prelude to the last meditation that we should just get used to playing with this. Uh, you get just variations on the theme, but there's a haiku. I mean, there's clear format. It's not just any old thing, right? Ultimate relative bodhicitta with multiple variations. Uh, variations on the theme, and just be doing this a lot for the rest of your life. Be really good core practice. And then as you're dying, so there you are. I mean, in the ideal scenario, frankly, and I've heard of many people dying in such a scenario, you're in the hospital, you're at home, 
the doctors have sent you with them, say we can't do anything more, you may as well die at home, surrounded with your loved ones and so forth. Here's a classical advice. And that is, when you know you're dying, you're really, you know, it's a matter of hours or days away, then here's the Buddhist advice. Take it or leave it. But this is the Buddhist advice from, that I've received from te my teachers. Is say goodbye to everybody. Say goodbye to everybody. And with a sense, I won't be seeing you again. So when you see it's quite close, say goodbye to everybody. Hugs and kisses and wishing you well and everything. Have a nice send-off. Um, and then either die alone or else die with a spiritual friend. And that could be a very dear Dharma friend. It doesn't have to be a guru. Guru would be very good if you have one available. But at least a Dharma friend who is not freaking out, who knows what's happened, and is going to be a real Dharma friend for you as you make this big transition. That's a real Dharma friend. right? Now, I didn't mean anything harsh by saying tell people goodbye. I mean, if they're all Dharma friends and they totally get it, if there's going to be no attachment, if they're not going to be weeping and don't go, don't go, oh, we're going to miss you so much. Like, that's what you don't need. You just don't need that at all. Uh, better have them out of the room. If you want to do all that kind of trip, I understand you have a lot of attachment, but not on my time. This is, this is my prime time. This is a very important time for me, and I don't need this. And so I understand, and I'm sorry that you feel that way, but you, know, you should have seen it coming. I was born. I'm dying now. It happens. You might want to prepare yourself. You know? If the loved ones, if there's, if there's a lot of love but very little attachment, then no problem. Be surrounded by loved ones, kind of wishing you well, if not quite popping the champagne and, you know, saying have a good trip, like you're heading off on a great vacation, all right, maybe that's a bit too much to ask. But if, every, if, you, if your family, your loved ones are all totally into dharma, then because, and you don't have a lot of attachment to them, hopefully very little or none, and they don't have a lot of attachment to you, they love you and they wish you well, and all they're there is to help you have a good send-off on a big voyage, then that's fine. There's nothing wrong with having people around you. There is something disadvantageous to having people around you and then feeling, oh, but I can't live without you. I love you so much. I can't, oh, I can, I'll never see you again. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, that's not going to help. And if they're doing that to you, that's not going to help. So it's really where you are and what kind of friends and, and how much attachment there is. But if, insofar as there's attachment, better to say goodbye, I love you, and, and now please go. And like that monk, you've heard the story, the monk had an attachment to one physical thing, his drinking bowl, and he didn't want that in the room with him. <laughs> okay? I mean, clean house. He didn't want to be dying. He said, oh, my bowl. <laughs> and, then, and then checking out, you know? He could be born as a little cock cockroach born in his bowl, you know, clinging, my bowl, my bowl. So you don't want that. Or, if you're, or quite literally, if you're really attached to your house, really attached to your house, Oh, my house, I, put, this is, I built this house or I renovated it. This is my, house, this is my bedroom, this is all my stuff. Oh, oh, and you're dead? Well, welcome. You can come back and inhabit that house as a ghost for a while. See how you like that. It's not pleasant. You wouldn't want, you'll not want that. But that can happen if you're really attached to a place, a house, etc. Not a good idea. So cutting loose, and it, it, you're cutting attachment. You're not cutting your relationships with your loved ones. You're just cutting your attachment. And then the best would be, if you're really an accomplished practitioner, then no sweat. You don't need any help. You know how to sail. If you like a bit of help, then having a spiritual friend, a mentor, a lama, anybody, but who really there knows about the dying process, isn't freaked out by it, and is there to help you without tears, and sending you having a sweet, a sweet departure. That's all good. And then as you're dying, then do this practice we've been doing. This is, this is, we're going to get to this tomorrow. But we'll see, Atisha is saying there are all kinds of poor practices entailing varying degrees of visualizations and mantras and pet, 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 and all kinds of cool things. And they're all good. I have no, he has no criticism. I have no criticism. But he's saying this is the best of all poor practices. And that is to be alternating between ultimate and relative bodhicitta, ultimate and relative, ultimate relative, slipping into the substrate, into the clear light of death, and you're on the way. That's sweet. Boy, that's good. It's benevolent this way horizontally with all of your Donglen practice. It's, it's profound this way vertically as you're anticipating your mind dissolving into the substrate and the substrate into the clear light of death. I mean, it's a perfect preparation, right? So just alternate. And then if you're already an artist, if you already learned how to do this, you've done it a thousand times. And the variations of the theme, you say, okay, now's my final performance. And I'm about to alternate between ultimate and relative bodhicitta. And maybe this is going to be five hours before I die. Maybe it'll be five days before I die, 
but I've cut, I've now done finally what Don Dumba said. I'm giving up all attachment to this life because after all, what choice do I have? It's going to be taken away all at once anyway. So if you're just sensible, you're going to give all, up all attachment to this life. But also, I'm not just leaving this life, I'm now really, this is a big opportunity. So we're going very deep, very quickly. It's accelerated pace of slipping through and having an opportunity to be dead lucidly, resting in the substrate consciousness lucidly. You might want to hang out there for a little while. And then the breakthrough into the clear light of death. Linger there for a while, well, that will be transformative. You know? And then once you're in the bardo, unless you have a better option, you might th be thinking very deeply, very, very seriously at that point, and better altogether in anticipation before you get there. You've got all kinds of options now. You're a stem cell. You know, you're a stem cell. You're, you don't belong to any of the six realms. You haven't bought your membership card yet. You're, you're a floater. You're a floater, right? And you certainly have all kinds of karma behind you. We all, do, we all do. You're floating. And you're being directed by your aspirations. For better or worse, you are being directed by your aspirations. If you can think of a better option than being born in a pure land, like Sukhavati or Dewachen of Amitabha, then you should go there. If you can't think of anything better than a pure land such as Sukhavati or Dewachen in Tibetan, I just want you to know both names so you get the you know, you know, language to speak. Sukhavati? Sukhavati? Anybody Sukhavati? You know, you're like, like landing in an airport. Sukhavati? Dewachen? Dewachen, you know? So make sure you know that, you know, the right person picks you up. <laughs> you, know? you said hell realm, hell realm, <laughs> this way. <laughs> you want to make sure you get that one right. <laughs> so pure land would be really good. You know, could be really, I, I don't know if there's a better option. If you're really very, very accomplished, then it's still a good option. So that's it. Five powers for dying. We've all been either jumped out of or fell out of the hot air balloon. We don't have a parachute now. Now's a really good time to find one, to have a soft landing. Death can be a celebration, and I know people, not all great yogis either. I know a number of people. Their death was nothing to mourn, nothing to mourn at all. Unless you just think death itself is intrinsically sad, in which you should just kind of get over that. That's foolishness. You know, it's idiocy. So I think let's, let's imagine we're just over that. Then there are really bad days of dying, bad ways of dying, neutral ways of dying, and there are ways that, gosh, unless it were embarrassing and you know people would think you're creepy, that it's really something to celebrate. Because it was such, oh man, way to go. A couple of you told me that one of your, one of your lamas, when he died, spent what was, seven, I think it was 17 days in the clear light of death, and then when that was over, then his body shrank down. We're sad to lose such a lama. That's our loss, there's no question about it. That's our loss. So sadness, sure. Because we want them to live on. But for the Lama, say, man, way to go. Whew. Fantastic. You've given us all hope. That's how we could die too. Why not? You know, you're not a different species. So there it is. Enjoy your evening. See you tomorrow.